Today we come to a portion where God's people in the midst of what He had called them to in their labor and as they serve Him and pursue His calling become discouraged. Discouragement is a common, human, normal, natural temptation. It's something that we all face. I know enough of you. I know uh, what is going on in many of your lives. And discouragement is that thing which slips in the back door, looks for a foothold, and wants to take hold of our thoughts and our emotions to leave us paralyzed. We're in Nehemiah chapter 4, verses 10 to 14. Hear then the word of God. In Judah it was said, The strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. By ourselves, we are not able to rebuild this wall. And the enemies said, They will not know or see till we come among them. We will be in their midst. We will strike at them. We will kill them. And we will stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them, outside came from all directions, and they said to us, ten times, you must stop and return to us. And so in the lowest parts and the space behind the walls and the open places, I station people by their clans with their swords and their spears and their bows. And I looked and I arose and I said to the nobles and to the officials and I said to all the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember Yahweh, who is great and He is awesome. And fight for your brothers and your sons and your daughters your wives, and your homes. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we have gathered this morning as your people. We are a people who are tempted by discouragement. We get tired. We get weary. We come under attack. We feel the weight of it. And we look and we lose hope. We need to be encouraged. And renewed. And Father, Your Word is so full of the truth. So full of that encouragement that we seek. Oh, teach us to find our foundation in Your Word. And in the God who speaks to us here. In You, O Lord, great and awesome God. Teach us not to fear. And to rise up. And to fight. And to work. With joy. In Jesus' name we ask and we pray. Amen. There are two ways that the enemy can defeat you. There are two ways that he can overcome and conquer you. And one of them is by actually besting you in combat. You can go toe to toe. You can slug it out or whatever form that it takes. And you can lose. You can be bested. Or you can simply be demoralized and quit. Either way, we lose. 
Either way, we are overcome. Every enemy can fight you and may win in that fight. But as often or not, in the battles that we face, whether it is at home and in our marriages or with our children or in church or at work or in so many different ways, we are not bested. We are demoralized. We lose heart. And we lose the will to fight. We become discouraged. We lose our courage. We quit. Discouragement is a sickness of the heart. It is, it's an emotional and spiritual state. And it's, so it's an emotional and spiritual battle. It's a battle that we fight for the heart. It is not God's design. As you read the Scripture, discouragement as I've been thinking about it and praying about it and reading about it, the opposite of discouragement is hope. And hope is one of the key, crucial, vital, biblical virtues, gifts of God's grace and the strength of His people. And discouragement is its opposite, its enemy. It's more insidious than any external opposition that might come attack us if they were actually besieging our walls and we could fight that good fight toe-to-toe and slug it out. But it's more insidious because it gets inside the walls. We stop manning the walls. We lay down our weapons. We give up hope. It's a heart sickness when we lose the will to fight. Paul finishes his life and he says, I fought the good fight and I finished that race. I did not quit when they beat me. I did not quit when they stoned me. I did not quit when I got bit by a snake or shipwrecked. I did not quit when they hated me. I did not quit when they turned against me. I did not quit when they slandered me. I did not quit when they mocked me. I fought the fight. And I kept the faith. Judah has not been bested and defeated. They've become discouraged. It's begun to set in. It's begun to get inside the walls. They, they're tempted to give up. They're tempted to quit. Why are they discouraged? Why, how did they get to this place? And the answer is because of the the size of the task that they were facing. They became tired. We all get tired. They were weary. They were active enemies who were not in their heads out to get them. And there was pressure. Pressure from the people on their side. Pressure to give it up. And so they got tired. They were weary. They were bone tired. In verse 10, we read that it was Judah who said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. We're getting, we get tired. You know, it's, it's, it can be long. You know, it's not a sprint. It's a marathon. And, and it gets hard. Physically hard. And we can grow weary. The truth is, when we are physically tired, we are vulnerable. 
Any, anything that, we, you know, I've done a lot of the different things on how we fight sin and how we fight, you know, addiction and our addiction to various sins. And, and almost all of them talk about learning to understand when you are vulnerable to those temptations. And the first thing on the list is when you're tired. Tired, hungry, lonely, sick. You are particularly vulnerable. We need to know that. Because how do we fight? How do we, how do we find deliverance and not fall to those things over and over again? How do we not go there? And the answer is we need to know that when we're tired, we are vulnerable. We lose strength to fight. It's proverbial. So we need to do some things to, to look after ourselves, take care of ourselves, and to guard our hearts in those moments, our hearts and our minds. They were not only discouraged at this point because they were tired, they were discouraged at the size of the task. Right? He says not only the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing, there's too much rubble. The burden is too much. There's too much rubble. There are too many stones to move. Right? These guys, as they're rebuilding the wall, they not only have to build the wall, we've talked about the width and the size of this thing that they're building, but they had to clear the ground where the old wall had been destroyed and tumbled in. It lay in piles. And before you can lay the foundations and build a new wall, you had to remove all that rubble. And it stretched a mile and a half, piles of, of, of rubble that were 20-foot walls that now had to be moved. And so, there we already know they've reached halfway in this project. And they're saying, there's too much. The task is too large. Now I want us to notice the focus of their encouragement here is they think that the task is too much. That this thought is a seed that was sown by the enemy. Right? We note if you remember back in verse 2 of this same chapter, and it said that he, you know, this Sanballat, their enemy said in the presence of the brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Right? It's too much. They can't do it. Too much for us. What are these feeble Jews trying to do? Are they going to restore for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Are they going to finish in a day? Will they receive the stones out of these heaps of rubble? Are they going to be able to move all this rubble and, and build the wall back up? It's too much. They can't do it. And the seed is sown. And the thought takes root. And when the going gets tough... You know, and there's a certain amount of truth in it. <laughs> and that's, that's part of it. it. The task was monumental. And the people were weak. Judah had been in a state of weakness for some time. There was a lot of rubble. They had to clear it and build. And these words of death have a way of slipping past our defenses and finding a foothold. We start to believe the lies. Get a root of fear. A root of bitterness. Verse 6, we were told that it had reached, the wall had reached half the height. Right? Back early on. So we built the wall. It was joined together. It reached half its height for the people had a mind to work. Right? It sounds so encouraging. You think, here we go. We're already halfway there. The people have a heart to work. But here's the thing. It's easy to run the first half of the race off the blocks. Right? And you and I both know that. Starting is easy. I used to run some track. And I know that the first half, I mean, in fact, the danger is to go too far too fast off the blocks when it's so easy. Because if you're a runner, you know what the second half of the race is like. The second half of the wall that has to go up. 
And to understand that that second half is the most difficult half and the most crucial half. It's, it's the finishing half. But it's the difficult half. All right, if you ever work out and lift weights or do something like that, you know the first five reps are the, they're the easy reps. You had a heart to go, but the last five are the ones that tear and burn and are hard. They had enemies. They were tired. The task is huge. The seeds of discouragement had been sown. They have real enemies. It's not in their head. They're real active enemies. Remember then, looking at verse 11, where it says, And our enemies said, and we heard, and we knew, they will not know till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. You know, their enemies, these guys who have been talking, are talking about action now. They're plotting. Tobiah and his collaborators plan to literally, while they're working and their backs are turned and they are engaged in the work and their attention is elsewhere, they literally intend to ambush them, to slide among them, and to murder a number of their workers, thin their ranks, put the fear in them, and get them to stop. They plotted together. Right? Verse 13. So in the lowest parts of the wall and the spaces behind in the open places, I stationed the people by their clans with swords and spears. Described how they defended themselves and as the passage unfolds in the rest of chapter 4, which we didn't have time to read, verses 16 to 18, it tells how they adjusted their patterns. They said some of them would stand with swords and spears where others labored, or some of them would carry burdens that they could carry with one hand and literally held a sword in the other hand. In other words, they're working now with one hand, in a sense, tied behind their back because it's tied up in having to defend themselves against this kind of attack. Spurgeon started a magazine when he was, Spurgeon was a 19th century uh, Baptist minister who, uh, who accomplished much for the Lord. Not only a great preacher, but he started orphanages and a seminary and traveled around the world. He had the first mega church and he started a magazine called The Sword and the Trowel. And it comes out of Nehemiah. It's exactly here where it says some of these guys, in one hand, they carried a burden or worked with a trowel. In the other hand, they carried a sword. Because it's an image of the Christian life. Right? In one hand, we're called to work. In one hand, we're called to labor and to press forward and to accomplish things, to build the wall and to do those things. And in another sense, we are called and we must, by necessity, fight. It's a good fight. At the same time, we must have a sword and a trowel to succeed in the Christian life. The trial to work. The sword to fight. And they also had pressure from, in a sense, the inside. It's outside the walls, but it's inside the camp. In verse 12, we're told at the time the Jews who lived near came from all directions. So like there were people working on the wall from, from all over Judah. They came and they had a you know, a vision for that work. They, they saw it as their own work. This is their church, their temple, and they came. But when they came to help, they left their homes. And if I left my house for two months or stuff around the house, my wife might start saying, when are you coming home? And if she figured and heard the rumors that our northern neighbors might actually conduct an armed invasion, fear sets in. You will come home. Right? What does it say in verse, 
13, it says that at that time they came and they told us ten times. The pressure begins to be enormous for them to quit and go home. They're weary. The task is huge. There's a constant threat of attack. There's this pressure coming on them to give up and to quit. And God's people get discouraged. They're tempted at this point to give up and to give in. To believe the lie. Because it is a lie that it is too much. And you can't do it. It's a lie. We must never play the victim. Never. We, child of God, must never play the victim. It is not too much. The feeling of discouragement, it is spiritual warfare. It is the loss of hope. It is the loss of heart. The Christian heart. Which is grounded in the hope that is ours in Christ and in a God who lives in range. It is a crucial biblical grace and virtue. And when you see that your heart has lost hope, you must, eyes wide open, understand and know you are in the midst of a spiritual battle. Because if the enemy can take your hope, I see this when I face so many different conflicts and in marriages and, and in so many places in, in our lives, in my own struggles, in my own thing, when hope goes... So there goes the battle. There are two ways to lose. And God says that hope is our gift. His gift to us. It's a spiritual battle. You try in your marriage so hard, you struggle and you fight, and it doesn't seem to get any better. Has the enemy won? No. But if he steals your hope and you quit, yes, he has. Right, You struggle, you pour out your life raising a child and you do this and the child begins to rebel or you begin to struggle if you begin to lose hope. Sickness invades your life and you, you fight that good fight but you start to begin to feel like you're not winning that battle or there's this struggle. We are tempted. We are tempted to give up hope. You labor to serve Christ. You labor to serve Him and to please Him. And yet, we disappoint people and things don't go the way that you you wanted them to. You're waiting. You're waiting to be married. You're waiting for a spouse. You're waiting for the new job. You're waiting for that promotion. You're waiting for things to get better. You're waiting. You're waiting. There's a temptation to lose hope. And when courage evaporates and hope fades, we are at war. I love how John Bunyan illustrated it in his Pilgrim's Progress. It's such a great allegory of the Christian life as you read it and you can find yourself in the things, in the stories, the allegory. We find ourselves there. And he tells a story of how Christian and hopeful on their way, you know, living the Christian life on their way to that day when they will be with Christ in the celestial kingdom. And it says that on their journey they got off track and they wandered on to to the property of, of a doubting castle. And then they end up finding themselves a prisoner of the giant despair. What a picture. In the Christian life, you're moving along, you get off track and you find yourself on on the grounds of of doubt and doubting castle and you end up there being a prisoner of the giant despair. Discouragement and its logical conclusion. And he puts them in a dungeon and it says that he beats them mercilessly. 
Right? Don't let it be lost on you. Right? He's saying this is our life. This, is the, this can be our Christian life. Right? The allegory of our lives if we find ourselves you know, that, that despair is a giant in our lives. It's a giant enemy to a believer, to Christian, and to hopeful. It's a giant enemy. And if He gets His hands on you and He can get you in His prison, He will beat you mercilessly there. He will, he will not be kind to you there. You know what I'm talking about. When you get to that place, how we can just beat you up. If we find ourselves in the hands of discouragement and despair, He will beat it out of you. But it says at midnight on Saturday, when they're beaten and they're bruised, Christian and hopeful begin to pray. Remember Paul and Silas in prison at midnight? Right, the biblical allusions, the call, Paul and Silas chained to a wall at midnight begin to worship God and to pray. Right, and that's when things are shaken and the dungeons open. And so Bunyan takes this and he says it. They begin to pray at midnight and he says, a little before dawn of the new day, that what happens? Good Christian as one half amazed. He broke out in a passionate speech and he said, What a fool, quoth he, am I, thus to lie in a stinking dungeon when I may as well walk in liberty. I'm really free. I have the key in my own bosom called promise that will, I am persuaded, open any lock and doubting castle and using the key of promise, Christian and hope escape doubt and despair and discouragement. What a powerful picture of the Christian life. It pulls all the biblical truth into it. Christian, brothers and sisters, you had the key all the time in your own bosom, in your own heart. The key of faith and hope in the promises of God and it will open any door of the prison that would seek to keep you and to beat you up. Christian, realize I don't have to live as a captive to despair. I don't have to give up. I don't have to quit. I don't have to lay here and languish. God has set me free. It is His gift to His children. Hope. And so let me just walk through quickly the steps that God's people took. They moved them beyond their doubt and their discouragement and pressed them forward. They took steps to arm and protect themselves. Right? We see in verse 13, he says after he, all the discouragement and after the enemy said, we're going to come among them and they got wind of it, he says that behind the wall in the strategic places I stationed people by their clans with swords and spears and bows. Right? He said, here's what I did. I took steps to arm and protect my people. Right? I believe that's the first step for you and I. We need to take steps. We don't We don't give up the fight. We take steps to arm and to defend ourselves against this kind of attack. This kind of temptation that would seek to unman us and to unnerve us and to discourage us and to leave us playing the victim. We are not victims. I read the New Testament and nowhere in there, no matter what the people of God suffer, never, never do these guys say, I quit, the enemy wins. I quit, this is too hard. I quit. Never. They, it is here in the page of Scripture why I say, what do we do to arm and protect ourselves as we go to the Scripture? 
God's Word is that lamp unto our feet, that light unto our path and to our souls. Oh, it is so easy to persuade ourselves in the midst of these temptations and discouragement and despair. We, we can persuade ourselves our situation is exceptional and so, and so exceptional, unbiblical, or all kinds of things that I would excuse and justify and do that, that are not biblical. You know, and so we're tempted in those moments to go down the wrong road. In the heat of battle, we need the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. That is our, that is, at this time, they arm themselves, and this is how we must arm ourselves. We must know God's Word. We must know the message of hope. We must know the message of, of God's grace and power in our lives and it doesn't leave us nor forsake us and He's begun something that He'll finish and that He who calls will uphold. Romans 15.4, Paul writes and he says, it is through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures that we continue to have hope. First, we must endure and must not quit. quit and second, we must arm ourselves through the encouragement of the Scriptures. Where, do, to, where, do our, where does our courage come from? Where does it come back from when we need it in the midst of whatever it is that you're fighting? To be encouraged, it says, through the Scripture. The sword of the Spirit to fight despair, to renew hope, to feed our souls on the promises and the truth of who God is and what He is able to do. They took steps to arm and protect themselves and they fixed their eyes on Jesus. They fixed their eyes on the great and awesome God. Verse 14, Nehemiah speaks to the people. He says, I looked and I arose and I stood and I said to them from the highest ones to the lowest of the people laboring out there and I said this, do not be afraid of them. Why? Remember Yahweh. Such a simple thing. If I were to stand here this morning and be like, don't be discouraged. Just remember Yahweh. So simple. Almost a platitude. But my friends, if there is not a reality to that statement in your life and in your soul, then you really do need to arm and protect yourselves and run to the Scripture that it might be renewed. We need to remember Yahweh. Yahweh is God. He is our covenant God. He lives. He reigns. He created the world. He is building His church. He raised you from the dead. He filled you with His Spirit. He joined you to Christ, His Son, and made you His body. He is the one who presses forward. He is the one who fights for us. If we do not remember, I don't mean remember like remember that God is powerful. Like that's a statement of fact. That's, a, that's an abstract idea. I don't mean remember that God is powerful. I mean remember and know the powerful God. And there's a difference between remembering God is powerful and knowing the powerful God. We need to know our powerful God. And we need to remember Him and be with Him. In verse, chapter 1, verse 5, when Nehemiah started this whole thing, we're told that he prayed to the great and awesome God. He prayed to the great and awesome God. That's where Nehemiah went. And when he prayed and when he was alone and it was just him, he was a God he knew to be great and awesome. And so in the midst of the battle, when discouragement is setting in, he could speak to the people of something that was real in his own soul. And he should remember the great and the awesome God. 
uses the exact same two words, the exact same language. The God He knows in His own prayer life and in His own soul, He speaks to the people. Your God is great and He is awesome. Strength and courage flow from a trusting intimacy with a living God. Right? Strength and life flow to the branch from the vine. Right? It's where the life comes from. Isaiah chapter 40, we know it well. He gives power to the faint. He gives power to you when you're faint, when you're feeling weak, when you're down, when you're discouraged, when you think you're losing. He gives power. And to Him who has no might, that is me this morning, and that may be you. He increases strength. Youths may faint and grow weary. Even young men will be exhausted. Even, even young people in their prime will run out of steam and, and get to that same place. But this is it. They who wait for Yahweh find strength. They are renewed. They rise up. When they've come to the end of themselves, they're still powerful. When they have no more strength, God is strong on their behalf. When they are empty, they find they can be full. When you think you can't go any farther, God comes near. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, as he is has a thorn in his flesh, a struggle, an affliction, a suffering, a thing that keeps bogging him and bringing him down, impeding his ministry, discouraging him. And he says, I've cried out to the Lord over this three times. You know, many times I have said, God, take it away. Have mercy. Make it easier. Deliver me from the circumstance. Change it. And God says, I'm not going to change your circumstance, but here's the thing. My grace is sufficient. Is that true? My grace is sufficient for you. My strength is perfected when you are at the end of yourself. Then, and only then, does the power of Christ rest upon us. In other words, supernatural strength. Strength that is beyond anything I could do or I could measure up or pull up or create in myself. And and when I finally let it go and, and the vine feeds the branch, In the soul, the power of Christ abides on His people. And let me say this, He reminds them that the fight is very personal. He says, don't be afraid of them. Remember Yahweh. He's the great and the awesome God. And fight for your brothers. And fight for your sons. And fight for your daughters, your wives, and your homes. This is personal. Right? The temple is your temple. The church is your church. These are your people. Your brothers and sisters. It is your family. The fight is very personal and very real. You need to understand that. And the battle in your own heart, it's not just about you. Your battle affects us. It affects your children. It affects your spouse. It may affect your workplace. It is so much bigger. It is so personal. I have in so many times in my discouragement been saved by this one. That if I fall, that if I am broken, 
that it's about my wife, and it's about my children, and it's about God's church. It's not about me. And when I fight, I, it, I get angry. There is an enemy. I say, I preached it last week, and I say, I see you. You want to destroy my marriage. You want to destroy their marriage. You want to cause division. You want to bring it down. I see you. And I will not play the victim. And I will rise up. His grace is sufficient. It is sufficient for me. It is sufficient for you. Colossians chapter 1, verse 11. A verse that is often spoken to me. Don't put it up yet. Please. Be ready, but don't put it up. It starts out. It's one of those verses that when I read it, and when God first spoke it to me, that I, it struck me so powerfully and changed my view about so much in terms of power in the Christian life. And it's one of those verses where he's talking about living that life that is worthy of the Lord, and he's talking to them about, about God and His provision for them. And then he prays for the Colossians, and he says this, I want you to be strengthened with all power according to God's might. And I remember reading that and almost building up to, he wants his strength and he wants you know, this power in them and he wants it to be according to God's glorious might. What is it that, he, that, he, that God's people need all of this for? Are they going to raise the dead? Are they going to convert the world? What is it that we need this level? In Colossians as he prays for Christ's church right here at the opening and he says, you need His power. You need His glorious might. And you can put it up. What for? Endurance and patience with joy. Sometimes I don't think we understand what a miracle that endurance is. And sometimes we're looking for this powerful thing, this man, you were looking for it out there, but I'll tell you this this one will get you home, this one will save your marriage, this one will save your. Church, this one may save your family. This one may save, it may save you. God's glorious might manifested in us so that we can endure, so that we would have patience and even, and even joy in the midst of it. I had so much more. I leave it with you. But this is the liberating truth, my friends. You have the key. The key is already yours. Faith in the promises of a God who raises the dead. And when we come to rely on a God who can raise even the dead, our hope will spring eternal. Father in heaven, you know that there is no temptation that has seized us except what is common to man. We are tempted toward doubt, to discouragement and even despair, where we can become its prisoner and find ourselves beaten. Oh, have mercy, O King, and open our eyes and remind us we are the children of a living God. And the keys of hope have been given into our hands. And we need never play the victim. We need never lay down and quit. We need never give up. We need never 
give over. We can rise. The righteous, they may fall a hundred times, but they will rise. Because You are God who raises the dead. Oh, capture our hearts and our minds. Renew us in hope. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.